Amen. First Peter chapter three is where we're going to be this morning. First Peter chapter three, and we'll begin in verse number one. First Peter chapter three, verse one. Let's stand as we get our Baptist aerobics in this morning uh, as a reading of God's word. First Peter chapter three, verse one. Uh, Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You may be seated. On a scale of one, one being horrible, and a hundred, awesome, rank how happy you are in life. For those of us uh, who are married in the room, my guess is that there's a strong correlation between how happy you are in your marriage and how happy you are in life. Uh, Even in a great marriage, you can go through seasons of ups and downs, but it's almost impossible uh, to be happy in life if you're unhappy in your marriage. There are a few things uh, more miserable uh, than a bad marriage. Amen? (laughs) But what if the secret to a happy marriage is not focusing on being happy? I mean, what if the secret to a happy marriage is is focusing on being holy, being like Jesus? I mean, what if you were the most free, the most joyful, the most happy, not by looking to yourself and not by looking to your spouse, but by looking to Jesus. You know, most people that come to our church for marriage counseling, they don't want uh, themselves to be fixed. They just want their marriage to be fixed. And they say, preacher, will you fix us? But what happens is a lot of people, what they want is they want short-term happiness more than they want long-term holiness. But what I found is that if you pursue happiness over holiness, you get neither. But if you pursue holiness more than happiness, you get both. Well, Peter here is writing to new believers who are living out their newfound faith and new life as as Christians and strangers in a world that is now hostile towards them. In a big section of his epistle, his letter, he is addressing uh, believers and how they should relate to those who are in authority over them. And so last week, we talked about the government and employers, those who were, uh, those were her crooked or cruel uh, governors and cruel and unjust employers. But now, uh, Peter is moving to the marriage relationship and how husbands and wives should relate to each other and to God in their marriage in a way that glorifies God. Peter's concern was not about the married couple's happiness as much as it was their holiness. And so if you and I are holy, uh, then we will be happy in God. And so what we got to learn from this text is this, these simple truths. Is it truly beautiful wives have a hope in God and really insightful husbands have a healthy prayer life? So let's unpack that. 
Number one, truly beautiful wives hope in God. Verse one, likewise, Peter is continuing his theme about authority. All of us are under some sort of authority. It's either school or work or church or the state or the home or ultimately with God. And so Peter spends his time focusing on submitting to authority because that's the situation all of us find ourselves in. And even within the early church, there were not many people of great power or renown uh, or authority. And so Peter is teaching them and us how we should embrace uh, this position and still do good and still glorify God. And so he says in verse number one, likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. And so I know uh, that as I say that word submissive, there is cold uh, chills uh, already going up the spine of many of you in the room because the S word is a hard word for many. But the word submit is a military term that is me that means to line up under command. Uh, Peter here is saying, wives, be submissive. It's in a different voice. And so you submit yourself. You willfully choose, submit yourself, willfully, voluntarily submit. So when it comes to marriage, submission in marriage is freely given, not forcibly taken. Submission in the marriage is not without limits. It does not give uh, the man the uh, ability or the authority to verbally, physically, or sexually abuse his wife. This is the woman's command. This is not the man's command to give to the woman. And notice also that the woman, uh, the women, uh, the wife, is called to not uh, submit to all men in general, but only to submit to her own husband. Now, I know that many of you, especially at 11 o'clock, you're like, all right, well, this is interesting. Keep going, preacher. Uh, but what does submission mean? Uh, what do you mean, okay, by this word submission? Well, let's tell you what it means by what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that a woman, uh, women, uh, wives cannot ask questions of their husbands. It doesn't mean that she cannot share her opinion. It doesn't mean that she cannot influence decisions. Peter is actually going to go out of his way to teach us how godly women have a greater influence on their husbands. So what is submission? Submission is a posture, is a posture of humble service that is willing to listen, follow, and respect your husband. Now, why is it, of all the commands to give to the wife, why is it that it seems like the main focus, not the entire focus, but the main verb here is the word submit? Why does God say to the wife, submit? And I think it goes back to Genesis 3. And in the fall of humanity, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God's authority, that not only destroyed their relationship with God, but also distorted their relationship with each other. And so it was in the fall of humanity that the battle of the sexes began. And so uh, a cause of the curse or the result of the, the fall is that women have a desire to control their husbands and husbands have a desire to dominate their wives. And so the New Testament writers, when addressing both husbands and wives, give commands that correspond with the sinful inclinations of our human heart. And so the sinful inclination of the husband is either to be domineering, that is putting the woman in her place, or a doormat refusing to take responsibility and being passive or lazy. And so that's the sinful inclination of the man. And that's why uh, the New Testament writers will tell husbands to love your wives and to cherish and to honor, which uh, goes against the sinful inclinations of your sinful heart. But then when it comes to the sinful inclination of women, that is to control men in general and to control your husbands in particular, to manipulate them. And so Peter here is saying, wives, to combat the, the, the sinful inclinations of your heart, submit. And so when Peter does this, he actually uses a hard case in giving this command. He says, even submit to a husband who is not a believer. 
You know, it's one thing for Peter to tell these women to submit to a Christian husband who loves you, who never forgets your birthday, never forgets your anniversary, who brings you flowers, who rubs your neck and back in bed, who does family devotions every night with the kids, and who listens to every word you say with full attention. That would be one thing, but you're not going to find very many men like that. That would be a rare thing. But it would be relatively easy to submit to a man like that. But Peter says here, you are to submit even if the dude is not a believer. Now, Peter is not advocating that men or that women should marry unbelievers. Okay? He is not saying that, that, that you should go ahead and find a guy that's not a Christian and then become a missionary and try to win him to Jesus. That's not what he's teaching in this text. The Bible repeatedly tells us that it is never a good idea for a believer to marry an unbeliever. It's never a smart idea. But many of these women whom Peter is writing to became believers after marriage, but their husbands did not. And so Peter here is addressing them. These women, now that are believers, are living as exiles and strangers in their own marriage because their husband is not a Christian. And, and, and we've had many, we have many in our church here, and I've counseled with many women in this condition, in this situation, and, and it's a very lonely place for many women of God in our church who love Jesus, but their husbands do not. And so Peter, in writing them, is giving these women hope. And so he says, be submissive so that even if they don't obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, Peter is not saying in this wordless witness that a woman should not share her faith. He's not saying that she shouldn't share the gospel or speak to her husbands about the Lord. But what he's saying is, is that by your submissive actions, you are pointing your husband to Christ. And so women, how you act and how you react in life and how you act and react to your husband can point them to something different, to point them to someone different, and the reason why you have this hope that is in you. And so if you are a woman of God and your husband is either A, not a Christian, or B, is not as spiritually mature as you, I want to give you some advice, and that is this. It's not your job to be the Holy Spirit. And so if you're constantly nagging your unbelieving or less spiritually mature husband to go to church, if you berate him, if you treat him badly, if you leave subtle reminders about how unspiritual he is, if you unplug the TV during the game and give him a Christian book and say, read it and I'll turn it back on, if you make him watch Fireproof 14 times and so that he can quote you every line, I'm going to tell you that's not going to win him to Jesus. No husband was ever won to Christ by being nagged to death. Amen? Some of the men were like, I'd like to say amen, but I'm not sure I can. <laughs> he says in verse number two, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, he says, this is how you to, are to operate. This respectful is not so much to the man, but it is towards God. As you read all throughout here, First Peter, when he talks about fear, when he talks about respect, he's not talking about showing respect and fear towards man, but it's respect and fear towards God. And so when they see that you truly respect and fear God, and by that your life is different, they, they say, you know what, my wife is different, and it's a good thing. I may not believe in all this Jesus stuff, but I can't deny she's a changed woman. I mean, there's a guy a few, a few years ago whose wife I uh, led to Christ, and she was radically, dramatically, and instantaneously saved. I mean, this woman completely just changed. She got baptized. She was living for Jesus and, and serving the Lord. And we would pray for her husband. Her husband's name was Billy. And so uh, I began to build a relationship with Billy. And she began to point Billy to Jesus. She didn't nag him. She didn't berate him. And so one day I was sitting there talking with Billy. And Billy said, he said, Pastor, I want you to know something. My wife is different. She's not as nasty to me as she was before. And he looked at me and he said, 
Only Jesus can do that, preacher. Only Jesus can do that. And Billy eventually gave his life to Jesus and was baptized and now lives for the Lord. So Peter says, listen, it is by your submissive actions that you can win your husband with a wordless witness of just how you live your life that you're different. And so Peter continues and, and talks a little bit more. He goes from just general to specific. He, he gets a little bit uh, meddling here when he says, do not let your adorning be external. He said, a wife's witness must rely more on an attractive behavior than physical beauty. He says, the braiding of hair, the putting on of jewelry, the putting on of clothing. Now, I want you to understand here that Peter is not condemning those things. Peter's not saying you cannot braid your hair. He's not saying you cannot wear jewelry. And he's not, and he's saying, he's not saying that you cannot wear clothes. As a matter of fact, you should wear clothes, okay? Uh, Peter's not advocating that you be as ugly as possible. This is not an indie fundy proof text to live plain. No, what he's saying is this, is that your inward beauty is more important than your outward appearance. He says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. Outward beauty fades over time, but inward beauty flourishes over time. So Peter says, do not let your look be the most important thing in your life and the overriding passion of your life. Uh, don't let what you look like drive who you see yourself to be. Now, sadly, in the day of social media, uh, this has proliferated that sinful desire for beauty that many women, especially young women, are, are often very insecure about how they look in the mirror. They are eaten up with envy for those who they think are prettier than them, and they are obsessed with how their bodies look. And as women get older, uh, they're consumed with trying to look younger, to stay fitter, and many turn to cosmetic surgery. But let me just say this right now. No amount of healthy eating, no amount of working out, no amount of makeup, and no amount of cosmetic surgery can satisfy your soul. So the question that I want to ask the women of God in this room is this, what do you want to be known most for? <clears throat> your hair or your holiness? Your looks or your love? Your heels or your heart? You know, I know many women, some women who would never leave the house without checking how they look in the mirror before they go out, making sure that they look exactly as best as they can. But yet, sadly, how many women will leave their house without spending time in God's word, spending time in prayer, and spending time encouraging their husbands? Proverbs says in Proverbs 11, verse 22, like a gold ring and a pig snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. You can be TikTok famous and have a bunch of men ogling over you on the gram, but if you don't have godly character, you are inwardly ugly. He says it's the imper imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. True beauty is on the inside that gets sweeter in time. See, beauty is only skin deep. But this kind of beauty is valuable. It's precious before God. God puts a high value on it. This kind of beauty that God says is truly beautiful, truly good. It's not something that you can buy. It's not something that you can put and, and get from a bottle. It's something that only the Holy Spirit can grow inside of you. And that is a gentle and quiet spirit. This gentle and quiet spirit is not a personality thing. Uh, some women are introverted. Some women are extroverted. Uh, Peter's not saying that the louder you are, the worse you are. He's not saying the quieter you are, the more spiritual you are. It's not a personality thing. It's a character thing. This type of spirit is a calm gentleness. Remember the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what he's talking about. 
This beauty is one of confidence and it's one of strength. He says in verse number five, this is how the holy women hoped in God and how, and, and, and hoped in God. This is how they adorned themselves. This is how God fearing women like Ruth and Rachel and Esther and Leah and Rebecca and Sarah. This is how these God hoping women live their lives. Those women are not weak women. They were strong women, but the strength of their heart, the secret to their strength was their hope in God. And so he says in verse six, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, it's lowercase L O R D. It's could be translated, sir. This is not a version of Dalton Abbey. You're not to call your husband, Lord Commander. That's not what he's saying here. Just does say, show him a little respect. Sarah did. Sarah respected Abraham. Even when Abraham wasn't around, Sarah spoke highly of Abraham. Think about that. And as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you are her children. Daughters of Sarah are those who do good and do not fear anything. Daughters of Sarah are fearless. They continue to pursue Christ. They continue to pursue godliness and they continue to do good for and to their husbands without any fear or intimidation from their husband because they trust in God. Truly beautiful women hope in God. Truly beautiful women do not find hope in their husband or their children or their cosmetic surgeries or their fitness regimes or their diets or their shopping sprees. Truly beautiful women find their hope in God alone. And so women in the room, you are not responsible to change your husband. You're not the Holy Spirit, but you are responsible to pray for him, to encourage him, to patiently, lovingly, and gently point him to Jesus and point him to the hope you have in Jesus. Only the Holy Spirit of God can change your husband. Truly beautiful women hope in God. Number two, really insightful husbands have healthy prayer lives. Verse seven, likewise, continuing the theme. Think about this. Women get six verses. Men get one. But yet this one packs a punch. Husbands, this is your obligation. This is how you ought to live. Live with your wives in an understanding way. This word understanding way means according to knowledge. Live with your wife according to knowledge. The question is what knowledge? Is this the knowledge of God or is this the knowledge of your wife? Well, the answer is yes. <laughs> Be understanding. Knowledge of God. Men, you need to understand God's word. You need to understand God's ways. You need to understand God's will and understand God's wisdom. The husband should be the spiritual leader of the home, well-versed in the things of God. I never met a woman that's truly a woman of God who didn't want their husband to be the spiritual leader of their home. Never met one. But I met many women of God who long for their husbands to be men of God. And what the Bible teaches is that man has a responsibility to love his wife as Christ loved the church with sacrificial, sanctifying, satisfying love. He's, Peter talks about in verse 14 of chapter one, this former ignorance, and many believing men are still living in former ignorance. Godly men, godly husbands are men of God's word. And I had a lot of guys say, Pastor, you know what? I just can't, I can't get God's word. I, it's, it's a hard struggle. I, it's hard for me to memorize scripture. It's hard for me to learn things. But here's the interesting thing. The same men who tell me that are the same guys who can tell you multiple starting lineups of football, basketball, and baseball teams that can go back 20, 30 years 
They can give you a complete statistical analysis of their fantasy football team. They can tell you everything about fishing, hunting, and chasing a little white ball. They can be experts in music, movies, and TVs. They can know how to build things, fix things, and tear things up, but they can't learn God's word. Baloney. There is no reason, men, if you are filled with the Spirit of God, that you cannot know and learn the Word of God. And listen, I'm not saying, men, that you have to know more about the Bible than your wife does. I'm just saying you need to know the Bible. You need to have a real, authentic, personal relationship with God that oozes out of your life and overcomes and overtakes every priority of your life. Men of God, you need to not be passive or lazy in your walk with God. Understanding of God. Number two, understanding of your wife. The interesting thing, the word wife here, it's a unique word. Only found a couple of times in the Greek New Testament, and it literally can be translated feminine one, the feminine one. We get our word gynecology from this. So live with the feminine one. This knowledge is not just analytical knowledge, but personal insight that leads to a loving, intimate relationship. So he says, I want you to live with knowledge of the feminine one. Now, think about this. The wife is told to submit to and respect her husband, but the husband is told to learn to live with the one who's not like you, the feminine one. Now, the question is, is this, which is harder? The wife can submit whether or not she can make any sense of her husband. But the man cannot lead well if he does not bother to understand who he is leading and how she is best led. So the burden is on the husband to figure out the wife more than it's on the wife to figure out the husband. And so here, men, you have to understand, for you to be successful in God's eyes, you need to be a student of your wife. You need to learn their language. You know, for 37 years of my life, I have been speaking one language. It's called Alanese. I've been speaking, I speak it fluently. I'm an expert. I have a PhD in Alanese. I can parse any of my participles. I can parse any of my words. I know exactly what I mean every time I say stuff. For the past 14 years, I've been learning a foreign language called Aprilese. And it's a hard language. It's completely different. Sometimes it feels backwards. And right now, after 14 years, I can say a few sentences. But you've got to be a student. Peter's not saying, men, figure out all women. That's impossible. He just says, men, learn more about your wife. What does she like? What does she not like? What, who is she? What's her frustrations? What's her expectations? What's her fears? What's her hopes? What's her passions? Men, study your wife. Study her. Not only understanding, but honoring Man is called to understand and to honor. Show honor to the woman as a weaker vessel. Weaker here does not mean inferior. It just means it doesn't have the same authority. God has put the husband in the position of authority. That doesn't mean that the woman is less than the man or inferior to the man, less intelligent, less spiritual or anything. That's not what he's saying here. I mean, think about it. God uh, is one God uh, revealed in three persons, yet within the Trinity, Uh, You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and and you have the Spirit that points to the Son and the Son that submits to the Father. But if you think about it, the the Father and the Son and the Spirit are co-equal, co-eternal, homoousion of the same substance, equal in value, essence, and worth, different in functions, and there is a hierarchy even within the Trinity. And so this position of authority doesn't mean that the Father is greater than the Son. It just means that the Son submits to the Father as a way of showing how God has designed things to be. And so the husband being in a position of authority doesn't give the right to the husband to abuse that authority. 
Husbands should never verbally, physically, or sexually mistreat their wives. And women, if you're in the room and you are in that situation, do not stay in that situation. If your husband is physically, verbally, and sexually abusing you, get help, get out, call the cops, come see the preacher, we'll go talk to the man. Tell him about Jesus. Husbands, you are to treat your wives with honor and dignity and respect, always cherishing, always thinking of her. You're to prefer her. Put her needs first. Treat her differently than you would treat anyone else. Never using your position as a, as a way for you to serve yourself, but always to serve her. About 15, 16 years ago, I was preaching this text at a church that I was pastoring. I was a single pastor at the time, Whitestone Quarry Baptist Church in uh, Bowling Green, Kentucky. Um, and uh, I was preaching, and, uh, and I, I, was, I, I used this illustration. I said that women are like teacups. They're light, they're beautiful, they're expensive, they're fragile. And then I said, men are like plastic cups. They're cheap. They're durable. They're easy to toss around. And I said, men, don't treat your wife like a plastic cup but treat her like the most precious, beautiful, expensive teacup that she is. Sitting in the church that day was a April Jean Hogue. And that was the day she fell in love with me. <laughs> Men, don't treat your wife like a plastic cup but treat her like a teacup. Husbands, do, does your wife know that you honor them? Do they know that you cherish them? Are you leading them by loving them? I'm not telling you it's got to be ooey gooey all the time, but, but I'm telling you that there are some ways, men, that you can lead in love. John Piper says that the husband is the one who is always saying the word let's. Let's talk about that. Let's go on a date. Let's go to church. Let's pray. Let's go on vacation. Let's spend time with the kids. Do you serve your wife? Why is it important? Peter says, because they are heirs with you of the grace of life. They are co-heirs. Listen, when Peter says this, this was completely out of the norm. Because there is no other place in Greco-Roman literature in that day that women were ever deemed to be equal or even honored. But Peter says, listen, guys, you have to understand the woman you're married to, if she is a Christian, you are co-heirs. That is, if your wife is a Christian, Jesus died for her just as he died for you. Men, if, if your wife is a Christian, the same Holy Spirit that fills you is the same Holy Spirit that fills her. And, and men, the same Father who is preparing a home for you in glory is preparing her a home in glory as well. So this should change, men, how you think about your wife. This should change, men, how you talk about your wife. This should change, men, how you talk to your wife. Now, why? So that. Why should I live with my wife in an understanding way, understanding of God, understanding of her? Why should I show her honor as a weaker vessel since she is heirs with you of the grace of life? So that. So that what? So that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, the wife, she's just told, listen, don't make it on the outward, make it on the inward, call him Lord every now and again. Do good, don't be scared, you're good. There's no warning. Here, Peter says to the man, 
a person in position of authority and leadership, if you don't love your wife, God will not hear your prayers. Husbands, if you lack love and understanding of your wives, if you're not trying, your prayers will be hindered. God will hear your prayers, but he will refuse to answer them. And I don't know about you, but I need God to answer my prayers. Amen? Especially in Naples, driving in season. Season is coming. I need my prayers to work. Amen? I get closer to God when season comes. And some of you all are the reason for that. Listen, I need God. I need him to answer my prayers. I I need him so much. I I couldn't pastor this church. I couldn't even begin to dream of living life without God. When you approach God in prayer, you're telling him you need something. See, prayer comes from a position of powerlessness. So think about Peter's logic here, okay? The husband is the person of authority. And so Peter says that, listen, men, if you've used your position of power and authority in your marriage to serve only yourself and not your wife, why would you think that God would use his position of power and authority to serve you? Why would you think that? But the the great thing about the gospel is the gospel is about God who is strong, yet used his position of strength to serve those who are weak. You and I. The Bible says that when we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. So those who believe the gospel should become like the gospel, which means men that we show the change in our lives by using our position of authority to serve the weak. See, marriage is not about your happiness. It's about your holiness. When wives willingly submit to their husbands and husbands gladly honor their wives, it's a picture of the greatest love story the world has ever known. That is the story of Jesus's love for his people. But let me just say this right now. If you're trying to fulfill the biblical commands and live in this way in your own strength, you'll never make it. You and I cannot love our wives and you and I cannot love our husbands in our own strength. We need the Spirit's help. We need repentance. Couples do not fall out of love. They fall out of repentance. We need the gospel. We need Jesus. Jesus is the perfect spouse. Jesus loves you with a love that never fails, never gives up, and never runs out. And and, and he knows what you need. And, And so you have to understand that if you are in a horrible marriage, married to a bad person in your mind, you cannot let that keep you from his love. And if you are in a great marriage and you are in a great situation, you cannot have your spouse be the main source of your love. Only Jesus can. Because when Jesus is your hope, when Jesus is the main source of your love, you can have a holy and happy marriage. See, when you realize how much Jesus loves you, then you're able to love your spouse regardless of who they are. Let me end with this. David Ireland was a writer and author. He was married to a beautiful, sweet lady. And he was tragically diagnosed with a horrible terminal disease that would ultimately render him paralyzed from the neck down. He was starting to have symptoms. 
They confined him to a wheelchair. Soon after this diagnosis, he went with his wife to another doctor's appointment where they both found out that they were having a baby. He knew that his days were short, and so he dictated a series of letters that became a book entitled Letters to an Unborn Child. He wrote to the child in his wife's womb as a series of letters because he knew that he probably would never see his child. And the truth is, is that as his wife's pregnancy developed, David eventually died before his child was born. He wrote in one of his letters, your mother is very special to me. Few men know what it's like to receive appreciation for taking their wives out to dinner, what it entails, what it does for us. It means that she has to dress me, shave me, brush my teeth, comb my hair, wheel me out of the house and down the steps, put the garage, open the garage and put in the car, put me in the car, take the pedals off the chair, stand me up, sit me in the seat of the car, twist me around so that I'm comfortable fold the wheelchair, put it in the car, go around the other side of the car, start it up, back it out, get out of the car, pull the garage door down, get back in the car, drive off to the restaurant. And then once we get to the restaurant, it starts all over again. She gets me out of the car, unfolds the wheelchair, opens the door, spins me around, stands me up, seats me in the chair, pushes the pedals out, closes and locks the car, wheels me into the restaurant. Then she takes the pedals off the wheelchair so that I won't be uncomfortable. We sit down to have dinner and she feeds me throughout the entire meal. When it's over, she pays the bill, pushes the wheelchair out to the car again and reverses the same routine. And when it's over, she'll look at me with real warmth in her eyes and she'll say, honey, thank you for taking me out to dinner. David Ireland says, I never know quite how to answer that. That's how Jesus loves you. When you were weak, when you were unable to do anything for yourself, when you were helpless and hopeless, Jesus came. And he loves you with an everlasting love. And he does for you what you could not do for yourself. He gives you strength that you do not have within yourself. Because his love never fails. And some of you right now, you are in a hell of a marriage. Because you don't have heaven in your heart. And what's keeping you from having what God wants for you is you need to surrender your life to Jesus. You need to come to a place where you ask him to forgive you of your sins and save you. And I know that's some of where some of you are right now. You, you may have come to church for one thing, but Jesus came here to save you today. Some of you in this room, you are a Christian, but you, you've fallen out of repentance. You're not willing to say you're sorry. You're not willing to admit your failures. You're, you're not willing to forgive. And some of you, you just need to spend some time praying with your wife or with your husband. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to call us, call everyone in this room, if you're physically able to come down with your husband or with your wife and to pray 
over them. I want husbands to pray over their wives, to pray for their wives. And then I want wives to pray over their husbands. And maybe today you need to give your life to Jesus. So we'll have pastors that will be here and we would love to talk with you during this time or after the service. You might be single here. You might be widowed and you might be, this may be a horrible sermon for some of you because you want to be married so bad. When Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So if you seek Jesus, you get Jesus. And when you get Jesus, you get everything you need. And so whoever you are, whatever you are, I want to encourage everyone in a moment. When I, when I, after I'm done praying, I want you to just come down. This isn't a show. This is doing business with God. You say, why do I need to come down to do that? Because God does business with those who mean business. And when you come down, you are saying, God, I am, I'm all into this. I'm not just going to be a hearer of the word. I'm going to be a doer of the word. And if the preacher says, do it, I'm going to do it. Because I want to be a doer of the word. Bow with me in prayer. Father, in Jesus' name, would you do what only you can do? Father, would you have your way? Father, would you move in this room? Father, for those in this room that need to have Jesus in their life, God, would those men, those women who say, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved. God, would today be the day that they would pray a prayer like this? And so if you're in the room and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, would you, in a step of faith, would you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I can't live life on my own. God, you know the sin in my life, and I ask you to forgive me my sins, and I ask you to save me today. In Jesus' name. Father, I pray that you move in this room. Change hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Everybody stand. And would you come down? Would you come and kneel at the altar or would you just come down and stand and pray with your wife? Just come on down, folks. Come on down.